you know, everything equals back, you know, whether it's, you know, whether, whether it's a straight line or a crooked one to business. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 70, and today's guest is Kim Miller. Kim is with WHP Global as the Chief Marketing Officer for Toys R Us. She speaks about the current relationship with Macy's and how they're bringing Jeffrey back to adults and kids in the U.S. market. She also has a funny story about her and Billy Crystal. Kim has worked with some of the media's best-known people, Martha Stewart, Rosie O'Donnell, and many others. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Kim Miller. Kim is a four-time Emmy Award winner with 20-plus years as a transformational media leader and brand storyteller. At WHP Global, Kim is CMO of Toys R Us and president of the newly established Toys R Us Studios. Prior to WHP, Kim served as a longtime senior executive at Martha Stewart, where she found and engaged diverse audiences through global brand partnerships, nationwide live experiences, and award-winning television, most noticeably as executive producer of the acclaimed Martha and Snoop's Potluck Dinner Party. Throughout her career, Kim has worked with a multitude of well-known brands, A-list celebrities and studios, including Paramount, Warner Brothers, PBS, and CBS. She's an active member of the Women's Leadership Organization, Chief. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is really fun. Uh, we'll, we'll get into Toys uh, Toys R Us uh, in a bit, but uh, Toys R Us was uh, you know way part of big part of my life. Uh, I have uh, twins that are now adults, twenty nine years old, and I have great memories of walking them through in their double stroller uh, through uh, our local various local uh, Toys R Us stores, packing shopping carts with diapers and formula and all kinds of toys for them. So it'll be great to hear what you guys have in, in store for the new Toys R Us. Uh, definitely, and it's funny. I have twins as well. Mine are seventeen. Uh, but have very similar experiences from uh, taking them. Um, I, you know, and around the holidays, you know, knowing that I could go there and find all of the top toys I needed for them and, and any of uh, and any of the other kids I needed to shop for. So that that's the thing I love is that everybody has a Toys R Us story. It, it, it keeps me going every day. All right. We'll talk about Jeffrey in a bit, but let's first talk uh, start with uh, talking about Kim. Uh, we like to get the uh, the guests' kind of first story where they grew up. Um, you know whether or not uh, what you wound up doing or have been doing in your career. You know was there any foreshadowing going on early that said you know hey I was going to be involved in media. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in New Jersey, and uh, I had a sister and brother, and I, you know, it was the the era where kids were allowed to be outside playing all the time uh, without anything structured. Um, and ironically, we had a colonial home that had one of those long, long, long porches with a roof on it. 
And so what I took it upon myself to do, you know, probably at the start of like eight years old was I uh, produced shows <laughs> on that front porch um, and, uh, you know, we'd, we'd write various scripts and then have various performers perform at, at will if I approved it and uh, call the neighborhood in. Occasionally I went got so bold as to actually sell tickets. I feel like that was one of the first things that I did that kind of really felt felt like who I was. And I really just enjoyed authentically. And as a little kid in a neighborhood doing something like that in a very scrappy way, I actually was pretty good at it. You know, that's uh, so interesting because although I asked this question of every guest on the show, it's few and far between where anybody says, you know what, I was doing back then what I do today. And, you know, I don't think anybody has ever said it quite the way you are, that you were in media, you know, when you were growing up. That's uh, that's great. I didn't know, but that's what I did. That That's what felt like a good day. You know, we rode the bikes, we climbed the trees, but, you know, we had to fit a show in. Right. <laughs> had to have a show. And and as you were, were going through school, uh, were you focused on, on media? Yeah. So it was interesting. I put myself through college. Um, and uh, so, you know, when you do that, there's a lot of, you know, consideration for, for money and things like that. And I wasn't what I would consider, you know, a stellar high school student. I was average. So um, I went to Montclair State University with the plan that I would go there and then I would transfer to an NYU or something and that way save money, get all my basics done. And I got to say, Montclair State University in New Jersey had the best broadcasting department for so many different reasons. It was hands on. Uh, so I got to be a cameraman one day, a director another, um, edit music the next, um, be writing press releases, be, you know, running events, uh, you know, with other companies. And they had a really great program of not just internships with, uh, you know, New York companies, but when companies needed basic level workers bringing you in. So I did do events. Like one of the most, most exciting things I did and my sophomore year in college, the Grammy Awards had hired a woman named Annette Herman, who thought it was a really good idea for all major talent to have a talent escort at the Grammys for um, at Radio City Music Hall. And so she assigned me to Billy Crystal. And, you know, I was as green as green could be. And, uh, you know, but having that experience of seeing everything come together from the rehearsals, from all that, you know, you're you're serving a, a celebrity, but it's like you're anytime you're surrounded by it, it's amazing. And one of the best stories I had with him is he came out to me and he's like, I'm hosting the Grammy Awards and my wife and two daughters are calling me about what outfits aren't working for them to arrive at the Grammy Awards. And, you know, he said, could you get me, you know, a drink with vodka? And I was like, yes, Mr. Crystal. And then I found out that um, that uh, Radio City was a, was a dry house. And um, I went back to him. I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Crystal, but they don't allow alcohol in Radio City Music Hall. And he just looked at me and he goes, if you're going to make it in this business and I'm going to make it on this show, you're going to figure this out. <laughs> and I wasn't even 21 yet. And through, you know, going through and pulling some people from various, you know, stagehands, anybody who I could find that I thought might be a little bit more, you know, um, uh, you know, radical, uh, you know, and we got him a nice little bottle, I think, of Absolute. And all he needed was a little, you know, it wasn't like he was drinking a lot. He just needed a good shot to separate the daughters and the the wife and, and their address drama and the fact that he was going to be on a live broadcast at Radio City Music Hall. That, and that's a great and even, uh, that, even that teaches you a lot just on you know making things happen and that there's humans 
you know, everything you do is so human facing and what their needs are. So, you know, as I was prepping, you know, it, it's so interesting, you know, you've been involved in media with so many, you know, well-known names, Rosie O'Donnell, Martha Stewart, Donnie Deutsch, whose show I loved on, on CB, uh, CNBC, uh, Joan London, Anderson Cooper. You were involved in uh, Rosie's show. Um, I believe you were, you were producing. Um, what does a producer really do on a show like that? What, what's the, the, the job description? So at, before I worked with Rosie, I uh, actually worked with Maury Povich way before it was Who's the Baby Daddy. Um, and, um, you know, so I had a so I was producing and field producing for them. And basically it's finding the people or sometimes there's bookers finding the people and it's figuring out the story that resonates with the consumer. So, it, or, you know, or the viewer at that point, the most exciting story that, that the points that people are going to want to know. And for a show like Rosie O'Donnell, it's a daytime show so that, you know, that, you know, the demographic of the people, you know, that it's women at home, usually having dropped their kids off, or it's people at home that for one reason or another are not at, at work during traditional times. And it's really rounding out the experience for them and really making sure that they get to know the person that you're interviewing with or the topic that you're interviewing or, or presenting and engaging them in a fun, entertaining way and being able to take something away from it. And, you know, some of the things I did with Rosie, who I, I really respected and learned a lot from, um, you know, she was cutting edge on like bread, breast cancer awareness, like for her to get women that were terrified to um, go get mammograms. She did this uh, celebrity, um, you, you know, celebrity takes you. And she didn't want cameramen in the, the the experience because she definitely had us find women that hadn't gotten mammograms that were high risk and she didn't want to put that pressure on them. So this was way before we all had iPhones. You know, she had me find a little camera and people, women like Whoopi Goldberg, you know, took this little camera in with women and guided them through getting their mammogram. And I just, what I loved about Rosie is she thought about all those different things. It wasn't just do it. It wasn't check a box. It was... How do we take care of the person? How do we make sure that the viewer understands that they're being taken care of? But yet there was still the entertainment aspect of it, of having the celebrity and having, you know, women that are powerful in the space that believe in it and want to, you know, encourage women to do it. We also did this thing called the Chub Club, where there were little clubs all, all over the country. Every Saturday I was visiting a Chub Club. And the goal was for women that really hadn't focused on themselves. And a lot of them were actually nurses. Um, to to spend some time on their health. So to get together with groups in their community, people they knew, people they didn't know, form a chub club, and to eventually walk or run a 5K. And it was really, really fun because it just built such community um, around all of you know these women around around the country. And it was just fun and successful. So, but the big thing that I learned at Rosie O'Donnell is it was the first time I interacted with a brand and entertainment. And what I had done is um, she had created this super kid hero uh, concept franchise and um, through her, the business end of, of, of the TV company, they aligned with Kellogg's. And so um, the agreement was that Kellogg's was going to give a scholarship, a full run scholarship to a super kid hero a month. So I worked with, you know, you, you know, there's no I in teams. So there were people that were searching high and low in the U.S. to identify who these deserving kids were. And they were usually kids that that did well in school. 
that and then also either served their community or did something else that was beyond the ordinary that really stood out. And, you know, the thing about about Rosie, too, is, you know, she really had, you know, it was very person focused and, and you know, and and it was interesting to me to meet with the Kellogg's people, understand what was important to their brand, yet be able to craft a whole story about a real human being that resonated with that without it feeling commercial at all. You know, the only time so we, I would go with the crew. I would cover the kids' story. And I mean, there were wonderful stories. There was this one girl in uh, Crystal River, um, Florida, who had straight A's in school. Her mom had MS. Her mom was pretty much bedridden. And at night, she had to wake up three times at night and roll her mom over, you know, and, and help her so that she wouldn't get bed sores. And, you know, and she was still an exemplary student in, in the community. There was another girl who had uh, brittle bone syndrome, who I'm still in contact with. This girl thrived in school and risked breaking a bone at every turn, always had broken bones. And so it's like, you know, just looking at, you know, how people persevere and, you know, Kellogg's loved it. And, you know, all these kids that and a lot of them were very low income and they got scholarships and it really helped them appreciate that they were special in, in what they were doing. And that brand experience was very, very valuable. And it was a start of a real shift in my career of understanding how to match the soul of a brand and the soul of a story and make it so that it's a value to the people that are going to be the end user of it and have them appreciate that the brand was involved, but not feel like they were being sold to. You know, I, I've spent my career um, in a very different way than than you have, but in marketing, mostly uh, performance marketing, so catalog, digital marketing. But there's lots of uh, of themes that you've just talked about that are so similar. Um, I think the the targeting aspect of knowing who your audience is, you needed to target your content to who the watcher of the particular you know show that you were producing. Very similar to what you know we're doing uh, in performance marketing. I think the other part that's, you know, consistent and, and interesting, um, you know, is measurement. And, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, you're not the, the data uh, uh, geek uh, in the room, but, you know, measurement of success uh, was, I'm sure, equally as important in, in your world as it is in, in, in the stuff that I do. So how did you get some feedback from whether what you were doing was resonating or not? Well, I mean, and at the end of the day, you know, everything equals back, you know, whether it's, you know, whether whether it's a, a straight line or a crooked one to business. So in television, what you're selling is those ad spots and the advertisers need to be happy. And how are they happy? They're happy because uh, they feel that the content you are presenting is number one, they 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 can align with safely. Um, number two, that it is speaking directly to the consumer they're trying to attract. And then in television specifically, um, you know, the big metric is ratings. So you get the ratings back on, you know, who watched, how long they watched, did they watch the whole thing? Did the show gain after the previous show? And did it lead into the next show, you know, in the network, you know, more, you know, did it help the whole network grow? Um, you know, then there was also the, you know, more softer, uh, you know, metrics, which is number one, did Rosie O'Donnell feel it was good? And, you know, there's always that boss. I say to every creative, you know, I, even if you're the boss's boss's boss, you're still going to have somebody that you've got to deliver to that needs to bless it. Um, was the network happy? 
was Kellogg's happy? You know, they were putting a lot of money into it and really wanting this to be, you know, a very feel good, successful thing that, that, that they had connected to them. So all those were very important on a very, you know, strictly business level ratings are what make the TV world thrive. We couldn't talk uh, about your career and your background without talking uh, at least a little bit about your time with Martha Stewart. You know, what's interesting, you know, about uh, Martha, um, you know, the creation of a of a full blown brand across so many different um, media components. So uh, maybe explain just quickly um, what you did at Martha in multiple stints there and, and you know, kind of the the arc from, you know, getting started to where, um, you know, a household name. Yeah, I mean, Martha Stewart is a force and a genius in, in, in all the, the amazingness of that. And in all the, you know, sometimes being really hard to work with her or for her or probably against her. I haven't had that, that honor, but um, you know, in, in all that, but the thing Martha did when you talk about marketing and brand is she single-handedly saw a white space on living and life and, and making that something that everybody's doing anyway. It's all part of what we naturally do when we're not doing the other things we're doing and making that a focus and elevating it. So, you know, so her Martha Stewart living put living on the map. And, um, and that was the beginning of that brand. And that was the beginning of lifestyle. And, you know, I say anybody who's on the Food Network, anybody who's on HDTV, Anybody who's on any how-to show really can stem back to her starting that. And the thing that she also did brilliantly that I learned from and take with me in every aspect of what I do is not just make it a linear, like a one, a one track. So she start like, so first, you know, I don't know what, what you know about Martha, but interestingly enough is Martha put herself through Barnard. Martha was a supermodel in Paris. Martha was one of the first female stockbrokers. It just, I love sharing that because it's just like, you know, it just shows you, I, I believe the woman's an alien and comes from another planet, but, but I digress. But what I learned from her is she started in her magazine, but you know, that wasn't enough. And simultaneously, she had her first entertainment book. At this point, I think she's at her 105th book, by the way, I, I helped with a bunch of those. And so when you think about that in a lifetime and, and, and that woman touched all of them. So there's a book on entertaining. Then smartly enough, you know, during the Kmart deal, she was also looking at television. And so to be able to cross section those, what you've done is you're reaching the audience. You know, we always say reach them where they are. At that point, that really wasn't a term. A lot of companies were very, you know, okay, let, we're a magazine company. We're a TV company. We're a book company. She took things and 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 circled them. And then the other thing she did really br brilliantly with which what she called omnimedia, her Martha Stewart omnimedia, is I equate it to a circle where not only is everything outward, you know, so that if I'm a book reader and I want recipes, I can go to a cookbook, or if I'm better consuming at TV, or if I just love a good magazine every month coming in my mailbox, each one of them marketed the other thing. So she was able to use her own internal marketing to elevate it, which is a very, you know, again, we all do it now, but I just want to say it, you know, it was very cutting edge at the time and then product attached to it. You know, if you, you know, love cooking, you know, you need these pots and here's why, 
you know, if you are entertaining, you know, you, you can't do it without, you know, making a centerpiece. And these are the type of flowers, you know, it need. And so then it all comes together. So it's like you're able to her philosophy was content first. That leads to product because you understand why you need the product and you understand how to use it. And it just kept exp expanding and exploding at that. So that's the basics of Martha. When I first went into her, um, um, I it was during her show. She was right out of prison. It was an interesting time. Basically, the woman that had my job was like, ah, and left. I was I started as the supervising producer and then it ended up being VP of production. And the eureka moment for me was when um, Martha Stewart, Living Omnimedia, was uh, making their partnership deal with Macy's. So Martha still wasn't very sure about me. I was a TV producer. So again, I was looking, what are the stories and how do we amplify them and make them sexy and excitable for, for the consumer? So, you know, I had pitched to her, well, I do think people might be really interested on how you, Martha Stewart, create a product line for Macy's. And um, it was at eight o'clock at night. And uh, she said, everybody go, you stay. And she pulled back a curtain in her, uh, in our, in our office space. And it was like, a, you know, nobody was supposed to go behind it. And there were these lines of products. And she went through probably a hundred of them with me that night saying, pick up like one of them I'll never forget was pick up this cup. Do you see how it rounds your hands? Imagine waking up in the morning and having a cup of coffee and your hands are warmed as well. That's how the French drink coffee. So I learned that when I was in Paris and I say, Americans don't do that. Wouldn't it be great to make a, you know, we still need a handle. And then she'd show me, we added the handle for, because that's what Americans expect, but this warms us. Like there, and she went just, I, I called my husband that night and I was like, I get it because before that I was looking at her as a talent and she's a difficult talent because she's, there's a million things she's doing in a day. But what she really was, was understanding how you can elevate a product and elevate a life through one. And I just fell in love with her. And we went through, you know, this she found in a flea market in, you know, Bangladesh, and it's the best fabric for this and just a whole bunch of different things. And, and that really, to me, from a personal life perspective was just, just game changing. I mean, it ended up, you know, costing me a lot more money personally because I started seeing the value in things and I could never just have a bagel. I had to have a bagel that was made this way. I could never have, but you know, when you learn the the, the point of view, it's, it's, it's brilliant. So my first leg with her was that. And then I went more into, um, you know, building other shows uh, with her around it because, uh, you know, and, and trying to expand the brand in the sense of having other talent and having other shows because it was going to uh, the Hallmark uh, channel from NBC. But what I saw quickly is, number one, the viewer at Hallmark weren't happy that the brand made such a big shift. So people were watching the Golden Girls and Little House on the Prairie. They ripped that off of the whole uh, daytime slot and it was all Martha, which is a very different experience. And so I, I said to myself, it's time for me to leave. So I went and I took some, um, you know, other jobs and and created a, a few shows. And um, one of them didn't work. And I was actually uh, between jobs and I got a call on my kitchen phone that I didn't even know my Mar Martha knew my home phone. And she personally called me and said, we need to have lunch. And this was, you know, two years after. And she said, the TV stuff is, is not in its best place right now. But because she was partners with Macy's, because she was partners with Michael's, because she was partners with the Home Depot and a bunch of other smaller partners that really valued her having a TV show because it was very easy to use a, a, a Home Depot product 
and and very smoothly be able to show it and showcase it in a TV show, she didn't have that anymore. And these partners had a huge loss. And so it was the digital age. It was like bringing that to digital in a way that served them as well as TV. And it wasn't there yet. So I was like, I was looking at moving out to California at the time, but I was like, how am I to learn this new digital world on the job with a brand that I really understand and love was a gift. And so that was one of the, that was the shift from really the first leg to the second leg of the job. The devil's in the details. You probably have heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that could make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who's helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. And now, Toys R Us. So you've taken all of what you've learned through all these uh, TV shows and people that you've navigated, and uh, it's it's time for a reinvigoration of, of Toys R Us. So let's uh, set this straight for the listeners. Who owns the brand now? The brand. So the brand went bankrupt. Um, then there was a, 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 a little messiness for two years. In March 2021, um, the company that I work for, WHP Global, um, acquired the brand, and I started in June 2021. Uh, WHP Global, it's an interesting model, and there's a few companies out there that do this, but the main thing that WHP Global does is rescue brands. So they're brands that have names that people love, that they recognize, but when you look under the curtain, the business model is for one reason or another, just not working. Sometimes they come in before there's actually a bankruptcy. In this case, um, they, they came in at the time that they did. Why do you think there's been this difficulty in, in maintaining and establish a national toy brand or a significant national toy player? Um, you know, Is it a, a function of the competition in the, in the space these days? From my perspective, um, I think that Toys R Us was really a beloved brand, um, was and is, and you know, and I and I thank God for that. I think for whatever reason that I'm not an expert in, there were, you know, whether it was the big box store model in competition with Amazon, the, you know, where they ended up in, you know, their how they were conducting the business, you know, from a um, you know, a PL perspective. It, it it went down, but what they did do well is the name and the emotion is still there. And that's why I took this job because um, just like I feel like I was a big part in resurrecting, not resurrecting, but reviving the Martha Stewart brand to something more modern and hip because there were so many fans. I felt that was the same way here. And I don't think anybody took really grabbed hold of this white space that was available when Toys R Us did disappear. And so, you know, I mean, Amazon is Amazon and it's amazing. And if you're looking for toy number 50203 and you know exactly what you want um, or, you know, Amazon, you know, there, there's a space for that. You know, the Target, the Walmarts, I mean, even I've seen toys in Barnes and Noble. I've seen toys in Whole Foods recently, uh, which is part of Amazon. So that makes sense. Um, you know, if you're, you're you want to have an experience where you go and pick up a toy they're there. But what was missing is, you know, the global authority, global retail authority in toys and play. 
And if you want to find out how to buy a, a bike for your kid and the right size and how to measure them, and do they start with a balanced bike? Do they need a balanced bike? That kind of stuff, you need to have to go to a place that, that you trust. And that's 365 days of toys. And that's what this resurrection is. It's really, um, you know, our, our my mission, the mission we have is we are the global uh, authority in, in toys and play. And the big thing that I realized when it's right soon after I came here is that a big part of the relationship, although it is with kids, is really with the parents. And um, for a lot of different reasons, you know, first of all, we all know they have the, they, they have the dollars that buy the toys, but also that, you know, they, they want to, they, they want to make sure they're doing right by their kid. And um, they, you know, they, they want to get the right information and it is a confusing space. It could be an expensive space. So we try to empower them to make the best decisions and give them a lot of uh, buying guides and tools. Uh, one of the biggest things that I'm proud of, and I just read a survey last night with all of our global partners, because by the way, right now we have um, uh, over 1,300 uh, stores in 30 countries. Uh, where we really had quite a comeback is, uh, you know, I, I implemented what's called the pillars of play, because the thing I realized in my early research at Toys R Us is how valuable, important, essential the concept of play is in developing human beings. Like, it's not a surprise that the kid's picking up the rattle. It's not the surprise that they're kicking the ball. All of it is what a big part of creating, you know, having our whole inner system thrive and grow. So when I realized that, and when I talked to like, we have a, a big, you know, we have over 550 stores in Asia. And when I talked to them and about how in Asia, you take it a step further and parents are actually competitive in making sure that their children are, are, you know, prepared for life. And then you take just in general, any parent in the world that wants to make sure that their child is getting everything they need to thrive. Play is an important part of it. And a lot of people don't realize it. It's, you know, toys are, you know, a gift for Christmas, a birthday gift, a reward. But when you start really looking at how play does this, we created the pillars of play and went and did really deep research in some of these pillars and the development. And really, it was a lot more about the play styles, like how pretend play helps children, how math play helps children, how musical play helps them be more verbal like really what can build confidence. And some of it is more confidence building sometimes and making them more social is more independent play, believe it or not. And we explain why. And then the toys become tools that help that. So, you know, and it's really important in modern marketing to build that relationship with the parent and, and gift giver and grandparent, and you know, and, and let them know that we want to be there to help them in a way that isn't always just shoving the product down their throat. You know, we all have an end goal, but that relationship in today's day is so important. So that was a very, that's been one of the biggest things that we've done that's really thrived. What is the uh, go-to-market in, in the U.S. market? You, you talked about, you know, globally, all these stores. Will there be stores, um, maybe touch on the partnership with Macy's, that would be great. Yeah, the partnership with Macy's was amazing. The day I walked in on uh, in June 7th, 2021, it was uh the, the deal had been signed. I was like, oh, good. Thank God. This is good. In the United States, um, again, the, the model with WHP Global is asset light. So we license out our brand, whether it is for a full brick and mortar store, whether it's for e-commerce alone, or whether it's you know for in-store. 
Um, the, the partnership has been great. So first we opened a global flagship at American Dream, which is a 20,000 uh, square foot, two level store uh, with over 10,000 toys. Uh, it's epic. Uh, you know, we put a lot of our design in it that we then share with our global markets uh, is a game changer because it was open and it was really cool. Uh, we now have a train there too, which is really fun. Um, and simultaneously, we announced the deal with Macy's and right away people were, you know, it, first it started with e-com and right away, you know, everybody was was amazed. Jeff Gannett was just the CEO of Macy's was just such a believer. You know, his his philosophy right out of the gate is every millennial is a Toys R Us kid and they now all have kids. So and that's his market. He was you know, that's where he wants to reach. Um, so we uh, partnered with Macy's. We all work very closely with him in our infrastructure at WHP at Global at, at, at Toys R Us. We have you know, people that understand the toy brand from a merchandise perspective, from an e-com perspective, from a marketing perspective, and from a store design perspective, uh, you know, with other, you know, supports within that, that work with Macy's, that work with our other partners. So we worked very closely with them. And when we were really surprised when when Jeff Gannett said, let's let's roll them out all by by October uh, 2021. I mean, I didn't think that was actually even going to be possible. Um, so that was number one. Number two, which was really important to me, and I was so happy that he had the same sentiments, is that it couldn't just feel like a toy aisle in Macy's. One of my colleagues, Simon Cardi, who's who's brilliant, you know, presented to Macy's all the ways to, you know, he helped them design so that the color palette was throughout it, that there's always a play element, that kids can always touch toys and play and experience. It varies between big stores and small stores, but there's always that experience where you come in and there's, you know, touching and things to do. The top brands and having them consistent, the hottest brands, the hottest toys of the season, all that people were really missing on a, on a much grander scale. And, um, you know, so it's really been very successful. You know, the fact that Macy's has the Thanksgiving Day Parade and we, I helped design the float with Jeffrey, which is really fun. And then what we bring them, which is besides the brand and the brand authority and the brand aesthetic and the love for the brand, is we are able to bring them 365 days of marketing of toys. So Toys R Us on Instagram, Toys R Us on TikTok, Toys R Us on Facebook, Toys R Us, all of that. Toys R Us email blasts every day we're able to market where for Macy's one day they're doing the housewares one day they're doing the perfume because they've got you know they're a master merchandiser the consumer is able to come to us constantly to to get information and sometimes it's entertainment and fun and pop culture relevant like if you know uh, this Spidey and Friends is coming out you know, we make sure that mom knows that Spidey and Friends is a new season if, if their kid likes it. And then we also say, if you want to buy a toy, these are all the Spidey and Friends stuff that's available. Um, and also activities for parents to do with their kids in relationship to that. So is there a ToysRUs.com that you either you've licensed or you are operating? Or if I want to buy digitally, am I buying directly from Macy's all the time? So ToysRUs.com is in conjunction with Macy's. Um, so the, the product comes from there. Uh, it is a frictionless um, site. So you don't you don't have to jump off Toys R Us com to go to Macy's, but it is fueled by Macy's. So and again, we have e-commerce meetings with Macy's every week. We have in-store Macy's every week. We, we are connected to the merch people, to PR, to marketing, to all the different legs so that everything we do is in synergy with them. And then also all of the toy companies. Awesome. Uh, great background. So interesting because so many household names, whether it's uh, 
uh, Rosie O'Donnell or Martha or now Jeffrey. So uh, really good stuff. Uh, very Jeffrey's exciting. a big part of the plan, just so you know, like from my perspective, you know, and we've done a lot with Jeffrey already. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's to have an icon, you know, I mean, coming from experience where I always had a celebrity, it makes it so much easier because you've got the person that's out there, you know, and these celebrity names are brands, right? So now I've got a mascot. One thing I like about him is he talks a little less and does what I say a little more without, you know, debating. Of course, everything I learned in those debates always elevated who I was and made me a better person. But in all seriousness, Jeffrey the giraffe should be what Mickey Mouse is to Disney. And um, that's what what I'm doing. You know, it was very important. We got him on TikTok right away. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, 800,000 subscribers on TikTok in less than a year. But we also have, uh, I mean, the views are in the millions and millions and millions. Uh, Jeffrey Vision on um, on YouTube is is focused on kids and it's seeing the world through kids' eyes. So that you know, in a very that that's our, our ground level stuff. And and I see a lot more coming when it when it comes to him. It's I, he's a he's a loving character. And I Comic Con in New York, I saw grown men cry when they saw him because they were so glad he was back. So I just it's like I, I'm. I'm beyond amazed at the 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 love for the you know the mascot and and the brand well good luck to you and to uh and to jeffrey uh we're down to the end of the show i do this two minute drill ask you seven questions one word answers uh you ready ready all right this one's going to be easy a brand that you admire or that inspires you well of course it's my brand but i would also say um i love uh i love sephora Okay. Favorite app on your phone? Um, it's probably a mix between TikTok and Instagram. Last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Macy's. Something that you're not good at, but wish that you were? Um, get more technical stuff. I, I know like, I know what I want at big picture. Sometimes it's hard for me, me to get to it quickly. Charitable organization that you're passionate about? Uh, the MS Society and the Make-A-Wish Foundation. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Um, I'd like to be able to, um, what was it? Be me up, be me up, Scotty. I'd like to be able to go from one place to another in a, in a quicker, in an instant. And the last one, other than family, what's your most prized possession? Well, I don't know if dogs count as family, but in my my prized possessions are my two dogs, Piper and Max. I walk in the house and and they act like I'm a superhero just walking in. So uh, they they keep my stress level down. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I I for all of my friends that know myself and my wife, we've not historically been lovers of of animals and dogs specifically, uh, but my daughter um, and her husband now have a dog, Lucy. And uh, Lucy is sitting beside me right now while we're doing this interview. Uh, we love her. She's been part of the family now for three years. So I, I do have a, a, a renewed appreciation or a new appreciation uh, for folks that uh, have that affinity with their dogs. So uh, <laughs> anyway, Kim, this was great. Thank you very much for uh, for doing this. I wish you and uh, the folks at uh, parent company uh, of Toys R Us, uh, best of luck. It'd be really exciting to see, um, you know, Toys R Us uh, become uh, back to prominence. Thank you very much for, for the time and for the support. And I really appreciate it. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Kim Miller for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, Kim spoke about how important storytelling is. 
Whether you're sitting through a job interview, building a TV show, or trying to convert website traffic, you have to craft a story and deliver it. I like being able to problem solve when producing content. Show the customer how what you're bringing to market will solve their problem. Sometimes the consumer doesn't even know they have a problem. But if you craft the story well, you can get your message to resonate. Number two, know your target audience. Kim has spent a career understanding the target audience of her talent. Once you know to whom you're speaking, you can create product and content that speaks to the people who are watching your show, visiting your store, or shopping on your website. In the case of Toys R Us, they understand that the target is both the kids and the parents. And number three, asset light. Kim describes the business model that WHP Global works under. They own brands and then license the intellectual property to other companies so that they can be asset light. Their partnership with Macy's has allowed Macy's to attract new customers and has allowed the Toys R Us brand to get in front of their target customers in a fun and physical environment. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. 